If you would please open your Bibles now to 1 John chapter 5. We're here approaching the end of this letter of John. have maybe a couple sermons left here, and then we're going to do one on 2 John, one on 3 John. I don't know when that's going to be, but at some point when I'm up here. Uh, just a quick note about, uh, before we read this, about this scripture passage, it's actually sort of uh, oddly grouped in our, our section, our passage divisions and chapter divisions in our Bibles. The first three verses really sort of conclude the discourse that happens in chapter four. It's about um, loving our neighbor and loving God, keeping his commandments. So the first three verses, we're going to look at them just a tiny bit, but I'm not really going to mention those uh, in this sermon. Really, the sermon is going to be about verses 4 and 5 there. Verse 4 sort of starts a new topic in, in uh, John's mind. So with all that said, let us now read God's Word here. First John chapter 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Father, would you bless now the reading and the preaching of your word this morning, so that we who are your people, we may be nourished, we may grow. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are many helpful images that capture certain aspects of, of the Christian life. We're pilgrims, traveling home, exiles in a strange land. We're servants in God's household. We're ambassadors announcing God's message. We are salt that seasons the earth. We're light that lights up the darkness. But what about soldiers? How often do we think in that image that we are all on a battlefield in the midst of a war. This, of course, is not a physical warfare of nations or peoples. It's not limited to a particular space and time in history. But it is a spiritual warfare that concerns each and every believer for the length of his or her life. As one person said, it is the fight in which everyone who would be saved must fight. In his essay, Fighting for Holiness, J.C. Ryle says this about our fight. This warfare, I am aware, is a thing of which many know nothing. Talk to them about it, and they are ready to set you down as a madman, an enthusiast, or a fool. And yet, it is as real and true as any war the world has ever seen. 
It has its hand-to-hand conflicts and its wounds. It has its watchings and fatigues. It has its sieges and assaults. It has its victories and its defeats. Above all, it has consequences that are awful, tremendous, and most peculiar. Talk of this kind of warfare is what we find in our passage This morning we see battle words like victory and overcome. But against whom exactly do we fight? In our passage, John simply uses the term the world. But he's not using it in the sort of narrow way we might typically use that today as 21st century Christians. Instead, He's using it as a broader concept to speak about all the forces of evil that attack us. To summarize it in the way we might think of things, he tells us our enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what he says. That enemy has been called the triple-headed enemy by the Puritans. It's called the unholy trinity by others. They together, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're a formidable opponent, crushing and merciless in their tactics, relentless in their pursuits. They throw challenge and challenge in front of us. How in the world can we overcome such an overwhelming enemy? John gives us a surprising answer. It is faith that overcomes. Namely, the faith brought about by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We'll admit it, that's not exactly the answer we were looking for. We were maybe looking for something a little bit more practical. That's not what he gives us. Faith, if we must remember, faith can move mountains. Jesus says. Faith is the shield which blocks Satan's arrows, Ephesians 6. Faith is the most important weapon that we wield as Christians. And we must wield it if we want to win the victory. Let's look at this fight of faith under three different components this morning. The first one is survive. The second one, advance. And the third one, victory. Survive, advance, victory. For those of you who don't know, I graduated from North Carolina State University. And you can't really be familiar with NC State without hearing the story about the 1983 National Basketball Tournament, NCAA Basketball Tournament. You you hear it all the time. It's the most improbable upset story in the history of major college athletics. It more or less defines NC State's athletic identity. We haven't really been good at anything since, so that's that's why. But as the story goes, NC State, sort of a middle-of-the-road basketball team that year. Not bad, but not good either. They finished 8-6 in their conference, 26-10. Overall, 
And at the end of the year in basketball, if, if you're not aware, or at least college basketball, each team gets a chance to compete in their conference tournament. And it's a real simple objective. If you win that conference tournament, it doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are, you go to the national tournament, the NCAA tournament. Now at that time, the ACC, which is NC State's conference, had some of the best teams in college or basketball history with some of the best players. Okay? There's uh, Virginia had Ralph Sampson. North Carolina had Michael Jordan, along with some others. No one in their right mind thought NC State could win the ACC, let alone the NCAA tournament. Now, the coach at the time was a main man named Jim Valvano. He was sort of a, a larger-than-life personality, sort of a celebrity coach, one of the first ones. And he was also a master motivator. And that year, he came up with a certain mantra for the team to live by. He said, we must survive and advance. Okay, survive and advance, pretty simple idea. The, the idea was we must just do whatever it takes in the moment to win, right? Doesn't matter who really gets the credit. Doesn't matter if that's exactly how he drew it up. It doesn't matter if it looked great. Just you have to survive that game, that moment, if you want a chance to advance towards your goals. Well, with that mantra, you can sort of, you know, guess what's about to happen. That 1983 team lived it out to perfection. And won the first game of the ACC tournament, they won by one point. Then seven points over North Carolina. Then three points over Virginia. Now they're ACC champs, and they're going to the national tournament. There they'd win their first game just by two, in double overtime. Next game by one. Then 19, it's, it's the outlier here. Then one again, then seven, and then in the championship game, they'd come up against number one Houston. Okay. Far and away the better team. I don't think there's any question about that. NC State would stay with them the entire game and then have the ball tied with seconds dwindling off the clock. They run a play. It, it doesn't work. Houston's defender bats it. Derek Wittenberg, the shooting guard at the time, gets it back. He sort of tosses up a last-second desperation, long-range shot. You can sort of tell it's really got no chance. It's going to the right of the basket, and then sort of out of nowhere, seemingly, Lorenzo Charles, he's a power forward, jumps in the air, right next to the goal, catches it, lays it in. State was the national champions. They had done it. By focusing on surviving each moment, each game, they had advanced as far as anyone could go. There's a great ESPN documentary about this. It's called Survive in Advance, if you just want some good television. Um, I've seen it, I've only seen it five or six times. Annie's dad, uh, my wife, yeah, he watches it every year. It's an annual thing. Um, but okay, what's, what's the point? What does this have to do with us being soldiers in the fight of faith? The very first thing any good soldier must know how to do is to survive 
against hostile forces. If a soldier cannot master defense or survival, he will quite literally have no chance to advance when the time comes. This has to do with the way translators translate the word overcome in our passage. It's verse 4. The word is just the verb form of the classic Greek word for victory, Nike. You've probably heard, that, heard of that before. Without any context, the word would more easily be translated as to gain victory or to conquer. Okay, so verse 4 could read like this, For everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. And, and I like that. And it would fit. But as far back as the earliest English versions go, translators have chosen the word overcome here. Why is that? Because herein lies the first principle for us in the fight. The devil, he is on the offensive. We are in his territory, and he is coming after our souls. Through the weakness of our flesh, through the allure of the world, he's constantly throwing obstacle after obstacle in our way to holiness. And we need to find ways to survive or to overcome these obstacles. Now, Satan, he knows the reality that John has speak, spoken of so frequently in our letter that no true believer can lose their salvation. But he also knows he can make true believers miserable. He can make us unproductive in Christ's kingdom. He can use us as a tool for the world to mock Christ and Christianity. And when Satan does those things, he's actually executing his strategy to perfection. By making individual Christians weaker, he thus makes Christian families weaker and when he makes Christian families weaker, he makes local churches like Westminster weaker. And when he makes local churches weaker, he makes the church universal weaker. And in each step of the way, he's sort of tightening his hold that he already has on this world. You may think a little dabbling in sin here or there is relatively harmless. But we need to remember that the ramifications end up being bigger than we think. So my first exhortation to you this morning, especially if you are relatively new to the faith or you're just going through a particular time of weakness, my first exhortation is defend your soul. Before you focus on advancing in theological knowledge or maybe refining your evangelistic gifts with your friends, or even really before you focus on growing in holiness, first focus on surviving against temptation. What I mean is if you do need to take some drastic measures to prevent yourself from sinning, you need to do that. 
If you need to take a, a back seat to career advancement to preserve your marriage, you need to do it. If you need to get rid of your smartphone or computer or TV, do it. If you need to remove yourself from certain people, at least for a time, do it. Sure, the world might look at you as mad. Surely there'll be a Christian or two who will think, who thinks that you're fanatical over that. But this battle is over the most precious of things. The consequences of this fight, they're real and they're eternal. Never have shame in prioritizing your soul's survival against sin. Never have shame. Once that has happened, once you've prioritized that, that surviving against sin, and you can gain sufficient strength against temptation, the next, that's when the next step comes into play. Like any war or battle or uh, basketball tournament, perhaps, the next step is to advance right, against your enemy. And so that's, that's our second heading, advance. Growth in holiness, progressive sanctification as we call it, it's contingent on your surviving against temptation. But it cannot simply take place by only surviving. As we ward off temptation, we need to put on a fuller measure of the Spirit. As we experience success in defending ourselves against Satan's assaults, we need to then think about how to advance our souls down the field of battle, so to speak. It's a, it's a two-fold process. But in many ways, we've already really gotten ahead of ourselves here to this point. So far, we haven't spoken of how it's even possible for us to enter into this fight of faith at all. All of this, the, the wielding, the weapon of faith, the defending our souls, the gaining ground against the enemy, it's all dependent upon one thing. Regeneration. If you're not born again by Christ's Spirit, all our conversation up to this point has been relatively useless. It is only by being born of God that one can have an effective ability to fight against the world and the flesh and the devil at all. That's what John implies to us in verse 4. Sure, you might have the common difficulties of this fallen world. You have pangs of conscience, right? You have maybe some, some times of sorrow for your sin. You have real sort of efforts to improve, maybe successful efforts even to improve, but you will not be in a fight to overcome the world. For without the Spirit, you cannot wield that weapon of faith that is required for this fight. In verse 5 of our passage, John asks a rhetorical question about the soldiers in this fight. He Asks there, in essence, can anyone who is of the world overcome the world? Can anyone who is of the world overcome the world? John thinks it's, it's self-evident. 
that only the Christian by faith displays any success in overcoming. For only the Christian by regeneration has died to the world and then been born outside of it. As Augustine coined it long ago, man in his fallen nature is not able to not sin. (laughs) Not able to not sin. In other words, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they had defeated you. They had defeated me. They defeated everyone in this world. Any supposed victories that we obtained were just trading one form of sin for another. Christian, I want you to remember what your old nature was like. You were dead, asleep, impotent, limp. The game was over, whatever you want to call it. You were unable and unwilling to defend yourself against Satan. To say nothing of your lack of ability to fight back against him in any way. But part of the gospel message that we so often fail to cherish is the news that the Spirit has made us now able and willing to fight this fight of faith. That is good news. There is no overcoming. There is no victory. There is no advancing against the world without this fight. And that's what I want to focus on more specifically now, that faith gives you the power to advance in holiness. John, he makes a curious statement there in verse 3 at the very end. And he says, and his, God's commandments, are not burdensome. Okay, it's interesting. We could probably think, maybe even off the top of our head, some passages in the Bible that would say God's commandments are extremely burdensome. How can they be both, burdensome and then not? Whether God's commandments are burdensome to you or not hinges entirely on regeneration. If the Spirit has come and brought life to your soul, one of the reasons God's commandments are no longer burdensome now that you can actually fulfill them. How? By faith in Christ. That's the connection that we see from verse 3 to then verse 4. Now you obviously, you, you do not fulfill them perfectly. Or do you fulfill them at every turn in your life? Yet the point is that faith gives you access to a newfound ability of obedience. Before faith, as we've just mentioned, you could only act out of a sinful disposition. But after faith, you may now actually live out God's commandments in an active way. What that means is that now, as a Christian, you have the ability to both avoid sin, survive, and to do righteous acts, would all say advance. To put it another way, using the Ten Commandments, that's what the Westminster Shorter Catechism does. 
is you don't simply refrain from something in the Ten Commandments, but you also do something because of them. Right? You don't simply refrain from murder, but you love your enemy. Or you don't simply refrain from adultery, but you love your spouse. You don't simply refrain from stealing, but you actually give generously. You don't simply refrain from gossip, but you actually pronounce the good news of Jesus to your neighbor. When you do those types of things, you are advancing against the enemy. You're going down the field of battle, so to speak. You're growing in holiness. You are overcoming the world. And you are experiencing the fruit of Christ's victory for you. And that's where I want to conclude our sermon as we wrap this up to, on that third component is that word victory that we see in verse 4. I heard it once said that First John's like a spiral staircase. Okay. As you are making your way up, as you're winding up, you keep seeing the same thing but at a different level and at a new perspective. Okay. How many times has John, throughout this letter, held out this sort of absolutely firm standard of Christian living? And he says things like, you must seek holiness, or you must forsake sin, you must love the church, or else. And yet every time he lays out the standard of the Christian life, he comes right after and gives us the balm of gospel assurance. He does that at least once in every chapter of this letter. Each time we do get to that different level, we get to that new perspective. So far we've talked only as if the battle was a present, ongoing battle. That's only one aspect of what John mentions in our passage. The other aspect is that the battle has already been won. Did you notice how John says in the second half of verse 4, he says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That overcoming is in the past tense there. And you see how final the statement is, how certain John is of it, that the regenerate person beyond a shadow of a doubt has overcome the world. If you know the Gospel of John very well, you maybe can't help read this verse in 1 John 5 to think back to that same verse we read as our assurance of pardon this morning from John 16.33. Jesus there, he's, he's speaking to his disciples soon before he goes to the crucifixion. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart or have courage. I have overcome the world. That is the balm of gospel assurance in our passage. We have overcome in the overcomer. If by faith we are united to Christ, we have already won the victory. He has fought that fight of faith for us. 
He has overcome the allure of the world, the pride of the flesh, the deceit of Satan. He has survived and advanced, if you will. And he sat down in the presence of God to enjoy the spoils of victory. When you place your faith in Christ, you get all of those things. You get the victory. You get the spoils. There is nothing the world, the flesh, or the devil can do to take those things away from you. So Christian, as you fight this fight of faith, as you wield that weapon in order to survive against temptation and then advance in holiness, don't be anxious. Don't fret over the status of your soul. Though you certainly will experience some moments of weakness. You'll experience wounds and momentary defeats that will cause pain to you and cause pain to those around you, especially those you love. The battle is never lost. Victory, everlasting victory is yours now and forever by faith in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Christ, now would you help us to have courage when we think of our enemy and the power of Satan, it can certainly overwhelm us. But by your Spirit, would we have courage to fight this fight of faith, to grow, grow in holiness, and all the while draw strength from the fact that victory has already been won in all that you have done for us. We pray all this to our Father. In your name, amen.